Welcome back, everyone. It's good to have you here. Um, We will be in Deuteronomy 6 this evening, so if you would already have your Bibles open to Deuteronomy 6. Um, We are having a repeat, in some ways, of this morning's sermon. Um, uh, In God's providence, for some reason, um, well, actually, we know the reason, is that ultimately God wants to hear us a message. Um, In a lot of ways, I'm going to be repeating um, almost as a footnote to what Pastor Wynn has already taught us this morning. But I think that's important for us to realize. We we don't plan this out out ahead. Um, But ultimately, God is using maybe these same messages, a a lot of the same content, so that we might actually learn something and truly drive it down into our hearts, something that Pastor Wynn talked about this morning. So with that said... um, Let's begin. So then we're going to be in Deuteronomy 6, uh, and I'll read in just a moment. So during our study of the Ten Commandments, I believe it is important that we continue our dichotomy of exploring both the Old and New Testaments to appreciate the true nature of God's moral law, His Ten Commandments. Though we are no longer covenantally bound to the Old Covenant, understanding the moral essence of the entire Old Covenant as it is exemplified in its legal writings, such as Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, so forth. Uh, Understanding this as it's exemplified in these writings will only aid in our understanding of the New Covenant's teaching on the moral law. With that said, as we go week to week, we will look at both the Old and New Testament's exposition and application of each commandment. Also, I believe we should look at both what the commandments prohibits negatively, and exhorts positively. So that will be the pattern. Exposition, uh, or, or I'm sorry, the prohibition and the exhortation, uh, the negative and the positive of each command. Both the Old and New Testaments are not just a list of things that God doesn't want us to do. God's commands are so much richer than that. God, who is incredibly wise and good father, tells us exactly how he's to be loved and honored. Just as parents should detail for their children what honors and dishonors them, such as Abby, do not play with daddy's microphone, Um, that that dishonors me. Uh, And likewise, in such a way, our God so instructs his covenant people what honor and loves looks like to him. Thus, this will be our pattern for the coming weeks. Four points each on each commandment. The Old Testament exposition and application, negatively and positively stated. And the New Testament's exposition and application, negatively and positively stated. So for this evening, we're going to continue our exposition from last week. Um, And last week, remember, we looked at, uh, it was a Lord's Supper service, so it was a little bit shorter. Um, We looked at the unbelief of the Jews in John 6. As noted this morning, the first commandment could be stated as the most preeminent and most important commandment. We're supplying the words of Christ somewhat, the weightiest matter of the law. It deserves our utmost care and attention, for it is this commandment that all others are rooted in. To illustrate this point, let us read the passage for this evening, Deuteronomy 6, and pray that God's blessing would be upon us. Deuteronomy chapter 6, the entire chapter. Deuteronomy 6, verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me, Moses, to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over, to possess it, 
that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of, uh, of all good things that you, did not, that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are among you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from the face of the earth. You should not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him in Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give your fathers by thrusting out your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us. If we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God, as he commanded us. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Father, Lord, we thank you that you do not leave us in the blue. That we have full comprehension of what you require of us in your law. But Lord, we thank you that your law is not something that is far away, but is near and in us, near to us. Lord, we ask now that as those who believe and profess the Christ, that he would be with us through the power of his Spirit, illuminating our eyes that we might see how we can better serve our Christ, better serve our King, and better serve one another. Lord, please be with us now. We ask this in your Son's holy and perfect name. Amen. All right. With that said, let's look at the Old Testament. 
for the following weeks, our scripture text will be out of Deuteronomy chapter 6 to 26. Uh, The reason being is that Deuteronomy is actually structured by the Decalogue. And the Decalogue is just a fancy term that scholars came up with to say the Ten Commandments. Deca, ten, log, words, ten words, ten commandments. Right? So that's what uh, the Decalogue is, the Ten Commandments. And it actually structures how Deuteronomy came together. It actually is the structuring pattern for, uh, for the book of Deuteronomy. Each commandment gets expounded and commented upon in these chapters of chapters 6 through 26, often connecting other parts of the Old Covenant legislation from Exodus to Numbers to this section of Deuteronomy. In this way, Deuteronomy acts as a summation and a commentary of the entire Pentateuch. Also, Deuteronomy is the main legal document that the majority of the prophets will reference during their ministry later on as they bring moral and legal charges against the people of Israel and their sin. For these reasons, this is why Deuteronomy is considered by many scholars to be the pinnacle of the entire Old Testament canon. It fits it perfectly in its theology, its theme, and its message. All the scriptures of the Old Testament canon, from Genesis to Malachi, in fact. If we want a concentrated understanding of what the Old Testament canon taught about the Decalogue, the logical and natural place would to be find ourselves here in Deuteronomy. Also, it should be noted that the Old Testament summation of the first commandment isn't just limited to Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy's commentary upon the first command actually spans from chapter 6 to the end of chapter 11. But again, I am merciful. Chapter 6 acts as a prologue, uh, if you would, for what we see in chapters 7 to 11. So we get the bite-sized portion here. We can therefore extract the main principles of 7 to 11 from 6. With this said, let's now look at the Old Testament exposition and application. So in Deuteronomy 6, we see three elements of the prohibition, what it means to uh, what the negative application of the first commandment is, the prohibitions, the things that we should not do or should not be done of the first commandment. And we can quickly summarize these, this prohibition as forgetting, forsaking, and frustrating the Lord. Forgetting, forsaking, and frustrating the Lord. We see from the opening verses that Israel was to know who God was and that they should endeavor through various means to remember who He was and what He has done for them. I am your Lord. The Lord is one. Do these various things to remember me, right? Um, After these statements to remember God, we read in verses 10 to 12 this. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all the good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For Israel... The land of Canaan was a glorious and bounteous blessing, but there was a real danger for them. It wasn't an external danger. It wasn't the Canaanites or the other nations residing in the land at that time. God was going to take care of it. He's actually very explicit about that in this text, is that he is going to drive them out. They're going to have the power of God behind them to drive out these nations. So it was not an external danger that was before them. It was an internal one. It came from within Israel itself. 
You see, Israel's command not to forget the Lord involves so much more than merely falling out of practice with certain customs and traditions that the Jews practice. In popular teaching today, this text is often used analogically. Preachers will guilt their congregations for the forgetting God, if you would, as a mother would guilt their children for getting to call home every now and then, right? Forgetting in this context is not, uh, I'm sorry, in these scenarios, I believe it lessens the sting of the word forget in this passage and elsewhere. Forgetting is not a lackadaisical drifting negligence of Israel. To forget God is not an oops or my bad moment. In its scriptural context, in its biblical context, forgetting is a willful, immoral act of the mind that leads to the forsaking of God for another. To forget God is to willingly ignore his revelation of who he is and what he has done. Brothers, it is this idea of willing ignorance of God's revelation that is the true character of forgetting the Lord. In theological jargon, Christians have distinguished three elements of true saving faith. Uh, The thing that we need to have a true relation with God. These three elements include knowledge. We need to know what it is that God reveals. We need to believe what God has revealed. And we also need to trust what God has revealed. In order for man to be saved, he must first have knowledge of God and his gospel. Or put it in another way, man must know who God is and what he has done. By so forgetting or ignoring God's revelation, man ultimately rejects the knowledge of who God is. Whether God reveals himself through Moses, as he did in Deuteronomy, the other prophets, finally and perfectly in Jesus Christ, or even in his creational acts, natural revelation, God has made himself known to every single human being. And if it is sin, if it is this sin of forgetting that all mankind has willingly ignored who God is and what he has done, and we all stand condemned for breaking the first commandment in this way. What is worse, brothers, is this ignorance of God's revelation, um, is that this ignorance of God's revelation is always met with the forsaking of the Lord. So it's not merely that we ignore the revelation, but we ignore it for the purpose of forsaking. So, whether by rejecting natural revelation, nature, uh, how nature or creation itself testifies of God, or supernatural revelation, ignoring or forgetting God's self-disclosure in the Word of God or in His special revelation, this is the initial act that inevitably leads to forsaking the Lord. For the Israelites, their danger was not just ignoring general revelation, how God reveals Himself in nature, In the context of Deuteronomy 6, Israel's danger was forsaking God's special revelation, how God uniquely reveals himself through the prophets, like Moses, his theophanies, and through his mighty salvific acts. And just to further my previous point, I want us to ponder this. Throughout the history of Israel, we see the nation of Israel go through periods of time in which generations are regarded regarded as knowing or remembering the Lord, or forgetting and forsaking the Lord. My question is this. How do entire generations, and let's think about this, how do entire generations forget God speaking through a thundercloud? Really ponder that. How does a people forget that? 
How does a generation forget the parting of the Red Sea? How does a generation forget the earth swallowing entire whole families? How does a generation forget miraculous healing, signings of divine messengers, and even more? Brothers, we often in our day, we may look at Israel and say to ourselves, how could you be so stupid, foolish, to forget that? Well, it could be argued that it was the generation after the ones that saw the signs and wonders that forgot the Lord. But even in this text, it says that we have seen these things. That they saw uh, this revelation. But I want to just give this quick illustration to prove the opposite. How this is a, a, a bad argument. Just to illustrate it. Brothers, I'm sure many of y'all know this growing up here in the South. Um, Every single grandchild knows that my maternal grandmother, she loves Chipper Jones, the Atlanta Braves baseball player. We all do in some measure, right? She wrote and published a book about her life. This is, again, a very southern thing to do. She wrote and published a book by herself about her entire life, and it only spans 150 or so pages. And I just want us to, to really pull from this. And she, in her immense wisdom and care about what is truly important about her life, decided to devote an entire page to a picture of Chipper Jones. Now then, you might say, oh, how well, it's just Chipper Jones. He's a good baseball player, right? Well, the sad thing is, is that she only wrote a list of the names of her grandchildren as an appendix on the back of the book. What is worse, she forgot one of us, and then then she misspelled two other names. Brothers, let's, let's just take the fact that I am never forgetting the fact, and I don't think you will either, that my grandmother loves Chipper Jones. Now, brothers, if this is the case for some baseball player. Some man. How much more should Israel have remembered what God had done miraculously in the lives of their parents in previous generations? So the argument of, oh, well, it it just slid out of their cultural memory. I don't think so. I don't buy it. This wasn't a gradual slide of an ancient belief out of cultural memory. Nor was Israel merely a stupid, forgetful people. No, brothers, they're just like us. They're not stupid, they're not foolish, they're immoral. Israel's danger was not merely about intellectual capability or recalling memories. Their danger was wanting someone other than their God over their lives. We see this point displayed in Deuteronomy uh, 6, verses 13 through 14. It's actually the juxtaposition of these two. Moses juxtaposes Israel's forgetting, this ignoring, with the going after the nation's gods. After the charge not to forget, Moses Moses writes this, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. So, don't forget God you fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. So with this juxtaposition of forgetting and going after other gods, we see where the Apostle Paul gets his theology in Romans 1, right? 
You see, by forgetting or ignoring God, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We saw this this morning as well. And by so suppressing the truth, we exchange or forsake the truth of who God is for a lie, for another God, another false ideology, etc. By Israel ignoring God's revelation, His message, His truth, they free themselves to go after lies that they find far more satisfying. What Moses is communicating to Israel is that they forsake God for the false gods of the nations. If they were to do this, when, when they do this, Israel is identifying themselves with the nations. But as we see in verses 17 and 20, the nations will be driven from the land. They are within the sights of God. They have condemnation coming. If Israel wants the nation's gods, they will share in the fate of the nations. Moses warns Israel not to go after other gods, saying, For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord be kindled against you, and he destroy you off the face of the earth. You will not be merely kicked out. It's a very important word here. It's Adam, not merely Eretz, uh, for those Hebrew scholars. It's what he's saying here is that you will not be merely kicked out of the land, Eretz, but kicked off the entire world, Adam. You will be judged. For Israel, there is a true danger of forgetting and forsaking God. They would end up just like the rest of humanity all around them if they were to follow this path, this act of forsaking God. They would end up under the condemnation of God. So then, these first two aspects of this prohibition of the first commandment, forgetting and forsaking, involve fairly black and white terms. We saw this again this morning. You either follow Yahweh alone or not. There is no gray area. But it's this final element that I want us to look, look at that is particularly potent for those who follow Yahweh, but not with their entire being. This final element involves following the one true God until what he demands doesn't accord with your own sensibilities. Simply put, the final prohibition involves frustrating the Lord. So in verse 16, we read this. And let's read this together. You should not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. The event that Moses is referencing is found in Exodus 17, verses 2 through 7. We won't turn there, but I'll simply summarize. In that passage, as Israel begins their journey from the Red Sea to Sinai, they come to a place and they complain that they do not have water and that God and Moses has led them to their certain death. Exodus 17, 7 says this that this place was called Massa because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us? Or not. In Israel's complaint, we need to see how they were testing God. When they ask, is God among us or not, they are trying to manipulate God to give them what they want. Rather than coming to God as a humble servant in need of provision, Israel challenges God to, to prove that he is indeed good enough to follow. Give us water and we'll continue going. Not a step further. especially in light of the miraculous saving events of the Red Sea two chapters earlier uh, in, in relation to Exodus 17. This challenge or testing is particularly heinous. God has demonstrated and proved that he is indeed worthy to follow. 
There is no need for this silly challenge. I have provided for you. You test me now? So coming back to Deuteronomy 6, when God prohibits Israel from challenging him, he is ultimately saying, what I have shown you is sufficient for you to follow me. Moreover, with the emphatic use of keeping God's command in verse 17, that diligently keep, it's keeping you shall keep. You should keep this. This is how you go about living your life. Testing should be read as not obeying, trusting, keeping, believing what God, uh, believing God as one should in light of what He has revealed to them. When we disobey, distrust, disbelieve, we are in some measure saying that God's revelation of who He is or what He is, uh, what He has done, is not sufficient for us. Or we could put it another way is that God's revelation of who He is and what He has done is ultimately not good enough for us. When Israel tested God, Israel was saying to God, Not good enough, God. Why should I continue to follow you? And brothers, there is many today that are followers of God. In that day and ours, they break this first commandment in this way. They want all the benefits of being a follower of God to get out of Egypt. But once it gets hard, uh-uh, not a step further. Once things get hard, they do all in their power to shirk their responsibility to follow after God. When men such as these, for men such as these, God is, is only so good up to a point. right? God is not all satisfying. He's only good up to a point. The question for us, brothers, is this. What kind of men are we? Is what God has shown us sufficient? Or do we need God to prove himself more and more that he is indeed worthy to follow? Brothers, be careful that your life saying, uh, that your lips saying one thing while your life is saying another. You cannot take hold of God. You cannot embrace God while at the same time distancing yourself from him in your attitude, in your lifestyle, or in your sin. Do not fool yourself, brothers. God is either good enough for us all the time or none at all. So then moving on to our second point, we need to see how the Old Testament is applied positively, uh, what it exhorts. Um, With the backdrop of this negative already established, it is fairly simple to see what the first commandment actually looks like. Um, So with this dichotomy, the second point is typically a little bit quicker. Um, and it can be summarized, this point, this exhortation can be summarized as knowing the Lord and loving the Lord. If you break the first commandment is to, God, to ignore God's revelation and ultimately to forsake Him, then to keep the first commandment is to hear, understand, and respond to God's revelation. To use the theological jargon from earlier, there must be knowledge, assent, and trust to what God reveals in order to have communion with him, to be in saving relation to him. For Israel, God communicates this reality and commandment perfectly in Deuteronomy 6. Let's read the first nine verses. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over, to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly. 
as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, hear this revelation, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hands and they shall be as frontlet between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Simply put, uh, the, the first three verses give us a little historical context to understand what God has done for uh, Israel and have promised to Israel. But in verse 4, we get that Shema, right? The hear. The Shema is a command to receive the revelation of God, to receive the knowledge of who God is and what He has done. This knowledge of God includes the greatest statement of monotheism ever uttered. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. At this point, this statement is either to be accepted believed to be true, assented, that one believes that this truth, that the Lord is one, that there is a Lord, that this accords with reality, that this is truth, or this statement is to be rejected, that it's false. To be of the family of Israel, you must regard this statement as true. Um, As Pastor Wynn said, it was recited three times per day. You could not believe in other gods, ideologies, religious beliefs, or worldviews that did not come from the mouth of God. So within verse 4, we get the strong, exclusive claim about what it meant to be a follower of Yahweh and the opposite, or not. And as we have already seen, you either believe God's revelation or you don't. There is no gray area. There is either a complete acceptance of what God had revealed about himself or none at all. There is no mixing of God's revelation with opinion different beliefs, or other truths, as it is for us today. To do so is to distort truth and to so make it false. The positive exhortation of this command is simply to believe, to regard as true what God has sufficiently revealed. I believe this point is well established. I'll keep it there for now. And there should be no confusion of this presented. There's one final aspect of the first commandment. It's exhortation. And we already touched on it. Uh, the first commandment not only exhorts us to sincere belief in God's revelation, but requires the full taking hold of God, the full trust of our lives to the one who has revealed himself and saved us. Brothers, to keep the first command, to practice it, God simply wants us to love him. We see this in verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This command is so much more than getting the right, back, uh, the right facts about who God is. This command centers upon true fellowship with the divine. To love God with our all, our mind, our wills, the direction of our lives, the totality of our being, is to be so energized and exhilarated by simply being with God. To love God is simply to enjoy being the mere presence of who He is. It is delight to be in His presence. It is a joy for us to speak to Him, to commune with Him. And His gladness to meditate upon Him. And His goodness to our rest, uh, to rest ourselves, to trust our lives, our all to Him. 
But not only this, God repeats in verse 6 what we've seen about how to love God, how we should love God, and that is ultimately living obediently to what He has revealed. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart or your mind. Therefore, to love God is to give the totality of our lives what makes us us to the obedience of His revealed moral law, what we're talking about for the next few weeks. In other words... If you love me, keep my commandments. But not only does he want those who already know and love to continue in this way, to continue to love him by obediently following his will, he wants his people to be in the business of bringing others into the knowledge of who God is and love for them, for him. In verse 7 we read this, You shall teach them, talking about the children, Uh, I'm sorry, teach them the commandments diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and you walk by your way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And we continue reading in verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are today. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he commanded us. So then, brothers, to summarize what we see here um, is that Israel was to be in the practice of making disciples of Yahweh. Israel was so to imbibe what it meant to love God that it brought their families into the same love and passion for Yahweh. Also, by Israel loving God and seeking to disciple others, the next generation would grow in curiosity for their parents' love for the things of God. And they would naturally ask, Why do you love God? Why do you keep His commandments, Mom and Dad? And the parents were to respond with what we see in verse 21 and following. If we were to remove the Old Testament language, and I think it's appropriate here, if we were to remove kind of the Old Testament characteristics, its old sounding, uh, its context, we can boil down the parents' response to simply this. The reason we love and keep his commandments is because God saved us and he gives us all his benefits. In the Old Testament, God's salvation was from Egypt and his benefits were living well in the land of Canaan. But this salvation and these benefits pointed to the greater salvation and benefits that Christ would ultimately bring. That said, God's salvation from Egypt was still a real salvation, and God's benefits of living in the land as a covenant people were still real benefits. In light of His salvation and His benefits, even though they are more earthly, Israel's only proper response was to tell others who God is and what He has done for them. So parents, what are you teaching your children? As a new dad, I think about this often. Better yet, how 
are you teaching your children? Because at the end of the day, we are all teaching our children something. And especially about God. This command in Deuteronomy 6 demanded the entirety of the parents' lives to be given over to the teaching and to instruction. You see that when you rise, when you go to bed, the entirety of their day, everything about their life was to communicate, I love my God and he loves me. That was the entirety of their lives. And for us, what are we communicating to them in every aspect of our life? Is it the love of God, his salvation, his benefits? Or is it drudgery of the things of God? Or mere social obligation to the things of God? Brothers, we have an obligation to our God to accurately teach our children about the things of God. I say this as my wife is taking my child out of the service. So then, do we teach that these things are joyous and meaningful in our lives? That the things of God are a delight to us? And do our children, more importantly, recognize it? Children. Children. Do you know that your parents love God? It's a little bit more in the face when it's the children asking that question for you, right? Think upon that, children, and parents, you particularly. Now then, with all that said, brothers, uh, this is the proper application of the first commandment in its Old Testament context. In the following weeks, I would typically conclude here. I'll probably have a little bit more application. I'm sorry if it's been a little bit droll. Um, I will typically conclude here, and next week we'll follow up with the New Testament exposition and application. However, lucky you, afternoon services, particularly with the Lord's Supper, constrain my preaching schedule somewhat. So I want to finish this, next, uh, this first commandment tonight so that we are better able to proceed to the second commandment next week. So I'm going to briefly look at the New Testament articulation of the first commandment. So the New Testament prohibition... So, uh, I want us to remind ourselves of the principles that we looked at last week. For they illustrate what it means to break the first commandment in the New Testament context. Last week, we looked at the unbelief illustrated by the crowds in John 6. We should remember that at one point, the Jews were upset because Jesus had said that he had come down from heaven, which is a statement of his divinity. The Jews snapped back at Jesus in unbelief because they weren't a God that they made for themselves rather than submit to the new revelation of God in Christ. You see, the Jews' disbelief to the claims of Jesus was simply the breaking of the first commandment. Just as in the Old Testament context and what we saw this morning, the Jews ignored and forsook the revelation of who God is and what he was doing in Jesus. And by so ignoring and forsaking Jesus, they broke the first commandment. With that said, I do want us to ponder how the commandment is different in the New Testament context in contrast to the old. And it's simply this. With new revelation comes new responsibility. We don't only have the responsibility to believe in the God and revelation of the Old Testament, but we also have the added responsibility to believe and understand how the New Testament informs our understanding of who God is in Christ and His salvation that He now brings. As God's revelation progressed and culminated with the Christ and his apostle, man now has 
uh, the apostle, man now has the moral responsibility to believe and trust what God has revealed about Christ and the salvation that he now brings. However, though there is progression in what we have what has been revealed uh, in time, we should still see that breaking the first commandment in the New New Testament context, our context, is just like breaking the first commandment in the Old. The only difference is, is that we have the full clarity of God's triune nature and the fuller understanding of the eternal salvation that He provides in Jesus, not merely redemption in Egypt. The moral principle of the first commandment still applies for us today. We must come to know who God is through his sufficient revelation and submit our lives to him. I stated last week, if we will not have this Jesus, Yahweh incarnate, the Jesus of the scriptures, we will have no Jesus at all, not his salvation nor his benefits. To summarize, in the New Testament context, to disbelieve the proclamation of the gospel is the most clear expression to break the first commandment in the New Testament context. Since we covered this point in detail last week, I want us to transition to the positive aspect of this command. Again, just as in the case of the New Testament prohibition, the principle of the first commandment exhortation carries over from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament context, to keep or to practice the first commandment is to know and love the Lord. We also saw in Deuteronomy 6 that Moses explains and unpacks the first commandment in light of God's salvation from Egypt. And so we see this pattern, knowing and loving God in light of his salvation. And it's repeated for us in the New Testament context, of course, with full clarity about the ultimate salvation that God would bring for those who believe. There are many passages in the New Testament that illustrate this point, but I'll limit myself to just one. And if everyone would please turn in their Bibles to Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 20. 21, I'm sorry. Let's read. Paul states this, or writes this. For this reason, I bow my knees before my Father, before the Father, from whom every family in, in heaven and on earth derive its name. That we would grant you, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. There's three things that I want us to catch in this passage. First, notice how we should approach this passage. The opening words of this passage say this, For this reason. And that phrase that, that phrase, for this reason, demands that we understand what Paul writes before this passage. What Paul states in this passage is not only properly understood, is only properly understood, if we understand chapters 1 to 3 of Ephesians. And just to simply summarize, chapters 1 through 3 contain the richest, clearest statements 
in probably the entire New Testament of God's triune, of our triune God's eternal activity to save sinners, to unite mankind, whether Jew or Gentile, to himself through the God-man, Jesus Christ. These chapters are God's glorious gospel explained in rich detail. And notice Paul's posture. He bows and begins writing what is commonly known as a doxology. He is praising God in word. He is doxologizing, if we can use that word. He is doxologizing for the reality of who God is and what he has done in Jesus. This first point hits us in the face to know who God is and to know what he has done, his gospel. Second, let's explore the logic of Paul's petition to God. In verse 16, Paul asks God to empower believers through the Spirit for the purpose that Christ may dwell in the hearts of believers. And this is important, brothers. This dwelling of Christ in believers' hearts communicates this reality, that Christ, His person and work, have become so central to believers that Christ is communicated through mind, through heart, through will, through actions and affections of those who believe in Him. This dwelling of Christ communicates that our all, the everything that, are, that we are, our faculties, our sensibilities, everything that makes us, us, is reflective of Christ. By Paul asking God to empower us for this purpose is for Paul to ask God that we should take hold of Christ by saving faith, knowledge, true belief, and true trust, and that we would make him central in our lives, that we would find solidarity with Christ and give our all to Christ. Brothers, all Paul is asking for here is this, is that we love Yahweh, our God incarnate, with all of our heart and with all our soul and with all of our might. Paul is asking God that we might better keep the first commandments, that we would love Christ. So with Christ so loved and made central in our lives, Christians are rooted, verse 17, and grounded in love. We are given the ability, strengthen Paul's terminology, to begin to comprehend and to know the insurmountable love of Christ. And brothers, if there's one thing you have to take home with you tonight is this. I love what Paul's how Paul uses his language here in 319. We are so enabled to know the unknowable love of Christ. Brothers, what Paul is saying here is heart stirring. When we practice true devotion and love to God, and when we come to think that our all has been given to the praise and honor of Christ, when we finally think that I know the love of Christ, I know His sweet communion, when I know the fullness of His fellowship, we do not. We do not know the fullness. We do not know the immeasurable richness that is in Christ Jesus. We do not know all His benefits. Not as we should. Brothers, if you believe the gospel and have given your life to Christ, it is proper for us to say, I know that I love God. There's an immense sweetness and joy to know that we have given our lives to this glorious, amazing God. It is good that we know that we love God. But brothers, it is an entirely different matter 
when we come to know how much God loves us. Brothers, what Paul is illustrating here is that God, by making Christ so supreme in our lives, gives us the ability to comprehend the unknowable, the incomprehensible love that Christ has for us. God wants us to know the un, uh, God wants us to know the unable to be fully comprehended love of Christ. And it is by so meditating upon the love that is in Christ, the love of God in Christ. That we are filled with all the fullness of God. Brothers, it is only by God giving his infinite love to us that we are so enabled to give our all to him. With the fullness of God, when the fullness of God resides among us individually and corporately, our homes by ourselves are here together. We are driven to give our God our all. Brothers, this is so difficult for me to categorize in words. It's because God's love shown to us in Christ is what we call ineffable. Unable to be truly understood and articulated with the human tongue. Is that we truly have a divine love in Christ. A divine love that is infinite, perfect, unshaded by any kind of sin. Immeasurable, vastless. This is the love of Christ given for us, applied to us through the Spirit, taken hold by faith itself, a a gift and blessing of God. This, it can't be described. It's immeasurable. Paul prays that the entirety of who we are would be given over to our God. And that we would be given over to the impossible task of trying to come to know fuller and better the love that is found in Christ Jesus. God has given us that impossible task that we in our finite limitations, that we might come to the infinite and measureless, vastless gospel of Jesus Christ and try to search it out, that we might be able to better attain and understand and take hold of this gospel for ourselves. What, God is, what Paul is asking God for is that we, us brothers, that we would try to take hold of the ocean. But brothers, it's impossible. But God has called us to take hold of that ocean, to get lost into that ocean that is the love of Christ. That is the love of God in Christ. Third, we, with our minds and our fix so empowered to know the unknowable love of Christ, this will only result in one outcome. When we are filled with the power and love of God, our minds are so transfixed by Him, our wills bursting to take hold of this vastless Christ. When Christ is our all, we are able to bring forth praise to the God who has done an incomprehensible work of grace in our lives. The words of our mouth and the testimony of our lives will be as that of Paul's final words. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly. Far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. 
Brothers, this is what our God commands, that we should so know His love, that we should so know the glory of God, that we would so love and glorify God. Brothers, this is why God's commandments are not burdensome. If God has so enabled us to take hold of Christ and His infinite love, to keep His first commandment should be our sheer joy. It is what we are destined and enabled by the divine hand of God to do, to take hold of the vastness that is in Christ Jesus. Brothers, to keep the first commandment is to know the fullness of the love of God found in Christ and His gospel, and to reciprocate that love by giving our fullness to Him. Brothers, to keep the first commandment is simply to have a loving and sincere relationship with Jesus. Do you have this relationship with Jesus? Do you know the love of Christ found in the gospel? Do you have the full, unrestrained access to the infinite, glorious presence of our God? I pray that you do. And may God grant you a growing love for Him as you seek to give Him your all to Him. May God grant us the ability more and more to do so, to take hold of our Christ and His immeasurable love for us. And may we do that by the faith that He has given us. Let us pray. Father, Lord, we thank You that You are a God who has shed forth His Son's blood. And Lord, it is so easy for us to think upon that reality But the true nature of what happened upon that cross was the greatest act of evil and yet the greatest act of love ever shown in humanity. And Lord, help us now as we begin to uh, comprehend the incomprehensible love of Christ on that cross for us that we will be so energized and renewed to see how our God loves us so. And may we take hold of this Christ with the faith that you have given us. Not only to seize him, but to have him as our all. Lord, may we give our all to him. For we love you. We thank you. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.